Alrighty, thank you, Sue, for coming on. Uh, um, I'll, before we begin, I'll just introduce you. Uh, you're a well-decorated track and field coach who's coached athletes ages seven to adult in a variety of settings, all the way from elementary schools to the world's grandest stage, the Olympics. You've worked with some of the biggest names in track and field, including Wilt Chamberlain, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, and Florence Griffith-Joyner. On top of all the coaching, you've helped found uh, the women's track and field program at Arizona State University. In 1996, you coached the Olympic gold medalist Charles Austin in the men's high jump. And in 2004, you served as the head coach for the U.S. Olympics women's track and field team. And Uh, you have a 50-year uh, coaching career. It started before the groundbreaking Title IX amendment, which prohibited gender-based discrimination in athletics and other programs. And you are going to be in a coaching, a virtual coaching summit at the end of February. Right. And, it's next week, in fact. Yeah. And then your book titled, I Want to Run the Olympic Development. Developmental Training and Nutritional Guide for Young and Teen Track Runners, ages 10 to 18. That's been out for a while. That's something we're also going to talk about. Okay. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. And how are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. It's like I saw the entire, like, the list of things that you've done, all the things that you've done in your career, and it's it's incredible. There's a lot of big names, a lot of it, a lot of big accomplishments and stuff like that. So let's let's start off and go back to kind of where it all started for you. Like walk me through it a little bit. Okay. Well, uh, track and field started for me back uh, beginning in high school, and back then uh, that was in the mid '60s, so way back. <laughs> And uh, girls did not have the same opportunities as uh, young men or as our classmates to have interscholastic sports. And so we had to, we formed clubs and competed through the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. And so that's where I got intrigued with the sport. I figured out very quickly I wasn't going to be the top-notch athlete. So how could I stay in the sport without being an athlete? And that's how I... Um, went over to the coaching side and just started learn by doing and listening to people and um, trying out certain things. We had an age group uh, girls team there in Phoenix. And so um, that was a good segue for me uh, to work with youngsters and see if I liked to coach and see if I was good at it. And luckily, you know, 50 some years later, yes, I was. So uh, it's been a, li a lifelong journey for me. That, that's incredible. And 50 some years of coaching, that's a long resume. <laughs> right. Well decorated. Um, in that time, what has been your favorite meet to attend either as a coach or a spectator or even as an athlete? Well, uh, you know, there are a lot of them as far as as a coach, you know, the Olympics obviously are the top rung on the ladder and I think the the opening ceremonies in 1992, uh, that was my first Olympics as a participant, if you will. I'd been to others as a spectator, but not down on the floor. 
And so that was exciting to march in with the USA team and, you know, John Paul Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever and just the whole ma magistry of the whole thing was was unbelievable. And, and of course, that's the first year that uh, basketball had the dream team. So the Michael Jordans and Larry Birds and all of them uh, headed our group, our delegation going in. And uh, it went from kind of exciting to see and visit with these guys to a little bit of terror because all the other countries started breaking ranks and running toward our uh, delegation because they wanted to see the basketball players. And the little um, security guards were just young girls, young guys, and they couldn't uh, handle the mass exodus there of people coming toward us. So it got a little crazy, but it got worked out and it was very fun. That's that's incredible. And then just kind of going off the Olympics thing, like what was that like in your coaching career? Like, was it impactful or like, was it something like you see on TV or is it just completely different on the coaching side? Well, the thing that as we tell the athletes we work with and sometimes we have to tell ourselves is it's just another meet you know, as far as preparing our athletes. And yet it really isn't just another meet because you look up in the stands and there are the Olympic rings and you look around and nobody speaks English or, you know, just all the countries. And and it it is a moment where you sit back and say, oh my God, I'm really here. You know, it, it's, I'm not on TV, uh, it's, it's in person. Uh, but then again, you you know that you're there for a task, a job, if you will, whether it be the coaching or the athlete to perform. And so you've got to keep things as normal as you can for the athletes so they don't get all caught up in the magistry of it. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely a huge, um, if you will, like a lot of pomp and circumstance to the event when it starts and when it's going. So got to also remember that everybody else is there for a job, as you said. And uh, just going as a question to that is, what is the most challenging event to coach? Has it been because of the event itself or the athletes that make it difficult? Ooh, um, well, I think, you know, all the events have their unique challenges in track and field. They're like, you know, 20 different events and each one of them have similarities and quirks with differences. So I primarily go toward the field events. And I I did that when I first started uh, just because I liked them and I had athletes that were pretty good in jumping events. And so I found that that was my my ticket, you might say, to, to start working with uh, more elite level athletes. But then also everybody it seemed at the time was a track coach, meaning they run, they worked with the running events. And so it's very, uh, field event coaches are not as common. And for women, they definitely were not as common. And so I guess I'm kind of a rebel. And so I went that route to be, uh, you know, a field event coach and a female field event coach, but uh, it's worked out very well. Um, you know, pole vault is a very challenging event to coach. Um, hammer throw you know any of the events because hurdles and and starts can be very uh technical too when you get to the elite level yeah. uh, so it's like 
you have your events that you'd consider a little bit more hard and then on the track side because you, you said you're a field coach there's like there's just a handful of events so it's just like kind of hard to choose almost well you know i want to say i'm a coach period meaning that <laughs> i'm a track and field coach so in theory i can coach any event i've been trained to coach any event some i like better than others you know yeah. and some um are easier for me to understand than others um and so you kind of drift usually toward that you want to sometimes be a specialist in a way and yet when you have a, a team you might have one or two people in five or six different events and you have to take care of that so um you know it's as a to a favorite event probably the the jumping the high jump long jump and triple jump are my favorites like i say pole vault is fun to watch but it is very technical to coach so I might be a fan to watch it, but uh, it's still a little scary to coach at this stage. Um, every event, you know, has has its fans, obviously. Um, and the way speed is going nowadays, you know, you've got your 100 meter, your 200 meter, which show the quickness and explosiveness. But if you've ever watched the end of a distance race, those ladies and gentlemen get out there and sprint. And uh, it gets very, very competitive and fast at the end of a mile or two mile or three mile. Yeah, fair enough, eh? Um, and then one of the other follow-up questions that I have is, do you and other coaches often share information of training and diets, or is that something you like to have as a secret to your, uh, your success? No, we share. I mean, I would say 90% of the coaches share um, it's even where every Wednesday night we have a call that USA Track and Field sponsors the Zoom link for, and we have elite level coaches on there and talk about almost anything. Uh, you know, last night we had Lance Brauman, who's Noah Lyles coach, and Noah Lyles is one of the top sprinters in the world right now. And he was on there for two hours and just answering questions from high school coaches, club coaches, or professional coaches. So, you know, some coaches at the elite level do have their little secrets. It's like they'll tell you so much, but not that final little piece. And so, you know, some of them will joke about they'll tell you when they retire that final piece. And then others, it, it depends on your relationship with them too, you know, as to they welcome you to come to practice and watch practice and follow them around, shadow them around and so forth. But um, there is a unique, it's unique to be able to coach. It's kind of like an artist creating a masterpiece. And so, you know, there are little twists and unique uh, parts that are to the coach and to the athlete that it's hard to replicate someplace else or with other people. Yeah, that that's actually kind of cool to hear that coaches sharing all that. So yeah, no, just we kind do. of yeah, moving on to kind of things. It's like I've mentioned in the introduction that you've worked with Olympic athletes and sports legends, and just tell me what it was like and share some stories if you can. Uh, with any of them, you mean? Any of them? Okay. Well, Will Chamberlain is probably the the one I'd like to start with because he sponsored our track and field team when I lived in Southern California. So he was a very big advocate for women's sports, uh, volleyball and track and field, and put a lot of time and effort and came to the meets and 
participated, help officiate and so on. And he was a real, it was unbelievable being around him, obviously, because just of who he is and who he was. Uh, but he would be able to give the athletes insight from a competitor point of view, even though it was basketball versus track. He's a great motivator. Um, he he would uh, travel with us on trips, you know, so we could see some of the hassles that he had to go through. I mean, you know, it's hard to hide in an airport or a, a sidewalk when you're seven feet tall. And uh, I remember walking with him in New York and, you know, little little people, meaning probably normal six foot people would come up and try to bug him and talk to him. And he's like, hey, man, leave me alone. I'm with my my team right now, you know, and, and people were pretty rude. So I can imagine just what I saw times hundreds, thousand other times that it would be a, a pretty big chore. But I also know that I was fortunate enough to see the other side of him where he did um, help when I have was having some financial challenges. He uh, gave me a monthly stipend to pay to get me to practice and to meets and things like that. And he helped me to help the athlete that I was working with at that time. And we were all on Wilts Athletic Club uh, as a team. And we traveled that way and there was no separation with that. Um, I remember one New Year's, I guess it was New Year's morning, and I I guess it was the mid-90s, and the phone rang like at 2 a.m., and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what's happened? It was Wilt calling me to just chat about my goals and my dreams and what I wanted to do uh, in the rest of my career. And so I thought, you know, my gosh, for somebody like that to take the time to call me, and I mean, we talked about an hour, so it wasn't a quick, hey, how are you? Goodbye. Um, for him to take the time and the effort to do that, I was I was really impressed. And it's the kind of guy you don't read about when you read about Will Chamberlain. You read all this other stuff or, you know, the 20,000 women and all that stuff. And I don't, you know, I never saw any of that, never got involved around any of that. But I know that he befriended us in a very platonic and a, a wholesome way. And um, he had promised one of the athletes on our little age group team, she was 13, and uh, he had promised her that if he ever came to Phoenix, he would come over to her house for dinner. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, don't say that because she's going to get all her hopes built up. And then how, why is Will Chamberlain going to come to your house for dinner? Uh, but a few years later, he did. And uh, he was there for a volleyball tournament. And uh, he came and we all crammed in a, the family Chevy Malibu, I think it was. And he uh, came to the house and we had dinner and we took him back to the hotel. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that are the fond memories for me um, off the track, if you will, that the, the fans don't see or that the media doesn't see. And, uh, you know, living in Southern California, I did have the opportunity then of working with uh, Jackie Joyner Kersey and Bob Kersey. Um, the heptathlon was one of her was her main event, but high jump is in the heptathlon as an event. And uh, I had known her from junior camps that we'd had when she was still in high school. And so um, she and her coach slash husband were at odds about how she would improve in the high jump. And so he asked me to come and help her 
And um, actually, I went and stayed with them for several weeks. And we went through different practices. And I would help her at the meets and help her at the Olympics and that type of thing. And so it was an outlet for her and an outlet for me. And, um, you know, she would vent to me if things weren't going right. And I remember one time, um, I think it was 1990 or so, and, and she we were at the Goodwill Games in Seattle. And she said, you know, it's so difficult. Walk with me, she said, walk with me, because it's so difficult. Everybody wants me to set a world record every time I'm out there. And she had already set the world record in the heptathlon. And so she said, the press are on me, the agents are on me, the meet directors are on me. And so I just walked with her and let her bet, you know, and, and then she went out and did her thing and did real well. And it's on to the next time. But uh, it's those kind of friendships that, uh, you know, you develop along the, the length of time that I've been involved with this, all the different people that you see them off the track, in addition to on the track that make it so special. That's incredible. Wow. Just hearing uh, from Wilt Chamberlain and then uh, Jackie and all that. Just just some of the, because like a lot of what the media portrays is like these superficial figures that are larger than life. But the thing is they're human too. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time that gets lost in media and then hearing things like this kind of brings the human element back to them. Like for the most part, Wilt Chamberlain, you're going to hear about his great NBA career and all the things he did. But you're not going to hear that he went to a 13-year-old's house four years later after he promised and all that stuff. Yeah. So. And again, you know, the the mom um, had, it was Hispanic. And so they, they had talked about a, a scratch Mexican food dinner, you know, and the mom had all planned this out. And I was like, oh my gosh, what if he doesn't come or what, you know, and uh everything just worked out. I mean, that was like, we still talk about it today with the family. So, I mean, you know, those are the things he had his little bodyguard there and told the bodyguard he'd see him later and <laughs> he left with us. So, you know, we could have done God knows what, but, uh, you know, everything worked out and, and Flojo the same thing, you know, being around the Wilts athletic club at that time was the names of the names, if you will, from UCLA. And, so, you know, Flojo, before she became Flojo, was just Florence. And uh, I have a beautiful wood carving that, uh, you know, she was very glamorous and all the makeup and the jewelry and things like that. Well, she was very artistic also. And uh, she painted her nails and all these designs. And we had a convention in Hawaii and she was getting an award for it. And I was kind of coordinating getting her there and so on. And uh, she painted this little wood carving thing of a um, a Hawaiian beach scene. And it's beautiful. And on the back, she wrote, you know, for Sue Humphrey from Florence Griffith Joyner. Uh, and it was kind of funny because it was in 87. So this summer or the Christmas before her big year. And she said, you know, hoping for good things in 88. And it was kind of ironic because... Of course, that's when she set the world records and did her um, Olympic medals and so forth. Did you ever see any of these athletes like in person break these records at all? Well, I saw Florence's uh, 100 meter record. Yes. Um, I've seen Willie Banks set the triple jump world record. Um, Sergey Bubka setting a pole vault world record. 
So, you know, certain times you do luck out to see them at the, <laughs> the right time, you might say. Yeah. I know it's like a lot of that's incredible, uh, incredible to hear. And it's like, what's the like reaction with the coaches when these records are broken? Like, do you see like, like a big like relief on the coaches or like, okay, we did it. We have something to work uh, towards like trying to find a middle ground of where they can get to that point, like realistically every uh, time. Well, when you, the only, when you break a world record or you have an athlete, I should say that breaks a world record. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of a bittersweet moment. I, my experience, I've had two different types of experience with that. One was, in 1982, uh, with a female high jumper, again, at the time we were with Wilts Athletic Club, Colleen Sommer, and uh, she was one of the top jumpers in the nation at that time, and we were at indoor meets going from place to place over the weekends, we were up in Canada, and ironically, that was a trip that Wilts had paid for, for me to go to, and I will never um, forget that, you know, without his help, I wouldn't have been there. And so in, in women's high jump, the two meter mark is like a four minute mile mark uh, for the runners. And so that's a mark that had never been accomplished by a female jumper. And she that night or that early that morning, it actually was, she jumped two meters and became the first woman to ever clear two meters in the world. And you're just like, oh my, you know, it's almost like you're shell shocked. You don't go to sleep that night because you're just still all excited and just, you know, but the feeling of what's next is definitely there from the coach's point of view, because this happened in February. And of course, I'm like, oh, my gosh, did she peak too soon? Or we got on our way to more, uh, you know, more better heights as we go. And it's it's an exciting moment, obviously, and one that you treasure but then you have to come back to reality and regroup right away too, because you still have many meets or competitions or your contract or whatever it might be is still in effect. So it's kind of mixed. And I know with athletes, when I've talked to them after winning um, medals, championships, and so on, it's a, it's a very strange feeling. And people don't understand that it's almost like, bittersweet it's almost kind of like is that it you know I mean after Charles Austin won the gold medal in 96 at the Olympics and of course that was not predicted he beat the world record holder it, it was a great jump off if you followed that competition it was in Atlanta so it was USA based and that night he was off doing press and getting ready to do the Today Show and Good Morning America and all that but I sat back in the village and I'm kind of like, okay, that that's it, you know? And it wasn't as exciting to me as the journey leading up to that moment. And in talking with some of medalists, several of them have said that, that it, it's kind of, uh, when you reach the top of the mountain there, it it's kind of like, uh, you're excited, but but it's kind of like, is this it? You know, it, it's kind of like the road up there uh, or smell the flowers along the way. Yeah, you definitely. know, don't forget the journey. And I would definitely go along with that, that it's not always when you reach the top of the mountain that's the best, uh, but it's that journey to get up there that really is the best. 
Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of going off the journey, like we've talked about people that you've coached a lot, but like in your coaching career, and you mentioned the conversation with Wilt Chamberlain, that was like an hour. And you talked about your goals and your dreams. Was that like a pivotal moment for you as a coach where you like, or was it just like, okay, I have some, like, I have someone to talk to and get my goals out with and just like, see where I can still go from here knowing like there's a realistic career here. Right. Well, I think it, it was, it wasn't an end all be all for me, but it was a kind of like a big brother talk and, you know, kind of a, he would obviously have a different perspective being a world-class athlete than, than I had into that because he'd been, you know, Mr. Everything. And so it was, it was great to be able to bounce ideas off of him and for him to bounce questions off of me about, you know, you know, well, what, where do you see yourself in five years or uh, what do you want to do next season? And, you know, to have long-term and short-term and to really talk through and to think through without any fear of um, what's he going to think about or uh, about me. Is he going to think that's stupid or dumb? Uh, we never had that kind of a rapport, which I really appreciate because like I say, I could say pretty much anything to him and he would counter back either uh, extending the thought or saying, hey, wait, is that really what you're thinking? And so I think it's important for for coaches and for athletes to have some kind of a person like that, that is close to you, but is not, you know, a, a partner or your spouse or your coach. It's somebody who's right on the outskirts there that kind of sees what you're going through, but can still tell you what they see too, and that you'll take it, you know, because sometimes all the things people tell you are not necessarily in your best interest either. So you've got to be sure who the people telling you are ones that care about you. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's incredible to hear. And it's like not seeing it as like something like end all or be all, like you said, but it's just something that kind of just, made you think long-term and short-term so it's it's nice to hear that coaches and athletes can have that kind of discussion and they can not view each other as like okay I'm the coach and you're the athlete it's just like like I said earlier is like the human element to everything right right yeah. and I think as we when you work with older athletes meaning chronologically older um you know it is a different rapport than if you're in a high school setting or a college setting, even there's, you know, we, there's always going to be a, I'm the coach, you're the athlete. And depending on the individuals involved, sometimes that can be very dictatorial and that's not necessarily good. Sometimes there is the, with a high school setting, you know, you've got to be here now and do this and do that. And you're having to deal with parents also, um, you know, college, they're finding their way. And so that is another dynamic of the athlete's maturity um, and growth. And then once they're out of college or out at that age, and they are more doing it because they love it, you know, there's no scholarships. And unfortunately, nowadays in the US, sponsorship money is very, very tight. So in many cases, a lot of these athletes are out there doing it for the love of the sport, not because they're making big bucks. And it's, I think it's kind of uh, been that way 
for a while and it's starting to shift towards more consumer market, if that makes sense, uh, with a lot of sports. Like there's not a whole ton of money, but there's still, it's slowly growing and like trending upwards in some direction at least. As far as for track, you mean, or just sports? I was I would say sports as a general. Like I don't know how that works for track and like if there's like they have to hit a certain achievement or something. So that yeah, I feel like that's out of my knowledge here. <laughs> well, uh, many tests out of a lot of ours because you never know what they're doing. But pretty much the shoe companies, which are the bigger sponsors traditionally. Um, they go for where obviously the market is going to see their product the most. Well, that's distance running because you think on a marathon or a half marathon or these road races, they're out there for 10, 20, 30 hours, you know, minutes and hours. So the shoes that you would use for long distance running are popular. So those runners can make a pretty good uh, living truthfully. Uh, the 100 meters, men and women 100 meters, that's a very popular event. And so the companies look toward that. Uh, field events are not so popular. And so there we're struggling as far as getting any kind of funds. And so it, it really depends on the athlete's event. A lot of times the athlete personality and uh, how well they interact with the crowd or have a crowd dynamic or is the viciousness of the world it's who you know and you know what strings you can pull so it's really hard when you are getting out of the college system to continue uh unless you're really really dedicated okay yeah fair enough um i think that kind of just answers that question as a whole and the way i guess i tried to word it and i couldn't fully word it Oh. But yeah, uh, I just want to open the floor for you to share some personal achievements that you're proud of as an athletics coach. So. Okay, well, the you had mentioned in the uh, intro, uh, the book that I wrote this I want to run, and it is on Amazon. And basically what I wrote this for was for a young uh, developing coach or parent, uh, or even a student who is interested in getting into track. And it's not the field events, it's the running events. And it tells about each of the events, how to train for them. It uh, does mention about nutrition and uh, how to stay eligible for school and, you know, the sleep part of it, along with eating your uh, balanced diet and so on. And so it, it's mostly a beginner's book, if you will, for middle school, high school age student athletes and or coaches and parents. So I'm real proud of this as a starting point, and uh, I'm going to be editing it and coming out with, um, let's say, a deeper version, um, a more intense version with it. And then another project that is just uh, opening up here next week is going to be a uh, virtual summit for a week where I have 30 of the elite level coaches in the United States, all different event areas. We have five speakers a day. And it's called the Gold Medal Coaches Summit. So it's it's just goldmedalcoaches.com. Uh, and it's a free workshop where you can go in and listen to these different speakers. And I mean, I've got speakers that are gold medal coaches that have coached gold medals. I've got junior college coaches, top high school coaches. So it's a variety 
of uh, distance coaches, sprint coaches, field event coaches. So that's goldmedalcoaches.com. I'll be so, sure to put a link to your book and to the coaching summit in the description of the episode. Awesome. So people listening can go and watch the summit or go look at your book on Amazon. And uh, great. I and appreciate then, that. yeah. And then with the summit, I guess like having coaches from like all these different level uh, levels, it's just kind of showing all these younger kids who may feel a little more inclined to go into coaching at some point, like, you can do it at any level realistically. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, sometimes we we have clinics or summits and we have all these top, you know, gold medal coaches, coaches of Allison Felix, coaches of Flojo, coaches of whoever. Uh, but the athletes, the the audience doesn't work with a Flojo or an Allison Felix or a Noah Lyles. You don't have an athlete of that level. And so a lot of times the information shared at those clinics are kind of, you know, 30 level, 30 floor, and you're still just right at the beginning trying to get in. And so I tried to get a variety of speakers that would present information that is applicable to start and use it now. That if you are a high school coach, these are ideas that you can use right now. If you're a beginning college coach, some areas in there, like we talked about dealing with the uh, athlete as a person and not just some points that are scoring for you. So there is a, a wide variety of topics and you can scroll through and watch and listen to some of them and not listen to some of them if you'd like or however you want to do it. But uh, I think it's a pretty neat project to start with and hopefully we're getting a good turnout on signups and want to keep promoting it. That's uh, awesome to hear. And um on just kind of on that whole subject of like personal achievements is, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, touch on or mention? Well, I just, you know, I appreciate, I think I'm a better coach because of the athletes that I've been fortunate enough to work with over the years. I'm, I'm big, you know, they are the ones that helped me or made me uh, in addition to me helping them, but you know, it was a two way street and I learned a lot from them and, you know, you goof up at times and then you get rewards at times. And, you know, the, it helped develop me as an individual and just my character and sense of values and things. And, you know, there are opportunities where athletes want to zig one way and, you know, go one way and maybe not is what you agree to do and you got to make a decision. And so, uh, you know, it's, there's gut check times with that, but I think uh, being on three Olympic staffs uh, has introduced a international world to me that um, is just, you know, unbelievable. When I sit back and think I've been able to travel all over the world um, and not really pay for it because it's been part of USA, uh, Team USA, that that's just been such a blessing. And uh, to meet people that are still my friends today, even though they aren't competing anymore, you know, that, that those it's lifelong friendships that you develop. Yeah. That's incredible. And that's so great to hear. And then uh, the last point I want to talk about is I just want you to talk about how you founded the women's track and field program at Arizona state university and how it's grown as a program since then. Like, okay. are you still involved in some way 
with ASU and the program? Um, not not day to day. I mean, I go back to the coaches, and ironically, they were recruiting one of my um, high school athletes here this last fall. So I got to go on the recruiting trip and uh, see how they wine and dine you and do everything now. So that was fun to see the facilities and how much it's grown. But uh, back again, as you mentioned earlier, with Title IX in the uh, mid-70s, uh, it suddenly became a requirement for the different colleges. If you're getting federal funding, you had to have a women's track program. And so a lot of the schools economically, and I understand economics and all this, but it um, they tagged the women's track coach position onto one of the assistant men's track coaches. So they didn't really hire anybody extra full-time. They hired me part-time and I came in, I had to teach a full day of middle school, drive over to ASU in the afternoon and uh, coach and do all the paperwork and do everything, recruiting, equipment orders and all that at night, basically, or on the weekends. And the uh, head women's coach on paper was the head, uh, was the assistant men's coach and that's the way they had it for uh two years and then unfortunately that gentleman was having some personal issues and he had to he had a medical withdrawal or whatever and so uh then they brought in another person to be the head women's coach but also to be the assistant men's coach and i applied for the job figuring you know i'd nothing to lose and I thought I had done a good job in putting the the women's team together we were fourth in the nation after a few years and uh had some outstanding individuals on there and a four by one relayed national champion and so on um but when the athletic director called me he said he did not pick me because I did not have experience coaching men at that time and I said, well, does whoever you hired, do they have experience coaching women? You know, I thought if it works for one side, it should work for the other side. And he kind of paused. Well, no, no. And and that really, that really upset me that it's okay that a man could coach without coaching women. It, it was assumed he could coach women, whether he had experience or not, but that a female could not coach men unless she had proven herself. And unless you have the opportunity to do it, how are you going to get any experience doing it? And so that really was kind of a motivating factor for me as I continued on in my career, because that was in the 70s, that was very young in my career. But it also, it was right there all the time because it really bugged me, the, the double standard. And uh, then when Charles Austin, athlete that I'd worked with, won the gold medal in 96, I wanted to call that athletic director so bad and say, gee, an athlete I worked with just coached a gold medal and uh, he's a man. And so, yeah, I guess women can coach men, but uh, I didn't do that. <laughs> that would be petty. <laughs> but uh, I sure wanted to, because that was a double standard that at that time that any females in the program, that's what we were up against was the fact that it was assumed men would be able to coach women. But women, we were already at a deficit and we had to earn the respect of our peers, our male peers, but we also the male athletes. And it was very interesting because after a while at ASU, I was there seven years 
And um, after a while, some of the male jumpers would come over after their practice was over and want to train with the women because they saw we were being successful. And of course that didn't go over too well with the male coaches. So, you know, it, it was a treacherous time because you had to earn your trust. Uh, it wasn't just given to you the way it was the man coach. Yeah. And ASU has done well. I mean, you know, they're a combined program now. They've won a few national championships uh, since then. And uh, I, like I say, I'm in good relation with the the coaches there now. And it's fun to see how the program has developed and matured. But uh, back when we first started, we had one of the girls' grandmothers had to make our uniforms. So it, it's come a, a far way from that, definitely. That's That's for certain. Um, thank you so much for coming on and being willing to do the interview. I really appreciate it. And just you taking the time out of your day to come on and do this. It, it means a lot. So thank you again. Well, and, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. And I enjoyed the conversation. There was a lot of really big points, in my opinion, a lot of big moments, a lot of great things you touched on. So I look forward to, yeah, just releasing it and seeing how uh, things go and just yeah. Thank you so much for the interview. Good. Again. Good. Thank right. you. You have a good day.